Volume Two, Chapter Three of Willard's Weird by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter Three. Bothwell begins to see his way. Dreary days followed for Bothwell Graham after that final interview with Lady Valeria. He had broken his bonds. He had escaped from the Kirke whose fatal spells had held him captive so long. He was his own man again. He could stand up before his fellow men and fear no reproach. Nay, he could even dare to meet that kind old man whose friendship had never been withheld from him. He could look General Harborough in the face and clasp his hand without feeling himself a craven and a traitor and that is a thing which he had not been able to do for the last three years he was relieved rejoiced at the breaking of that old tie and yet there was a touch of pain in such a parting there came a bitter pang of remorse now and again to disturb his sense of newly recovered peace such severances can never happen without pain the man who can be utterly indifferent to the agony of a woman he has once loved must have a heart of stone. Bothwell was not stony-hearted. He knew that Valeria Harborough was not a good woman, that she had been shamefully false to the best of husbands, that she had abandoned herself recklessly to the promptings of a fatal passion. But he had loved her once, and his heart bled for her now in her misery and abandonment. He was haunted by the vision of her face, as she had risen up before him, white as the very dead, her eyes flashing, her lips quivering, her voice subdued by passion to a serpent-like hiss, as she told him, You are in love with another woman. Yes, that was what it all came to. That was the sum total of his scruples, his remorse of conscience, or at least, that is what it must needs seem in the sight of the woman he abandoned. She would give him no credit for many a remorseful pang, many a sting of conscience in the past. Yes, even in the noontide of passion, when he deemed that for him fate held not the possibility of another love. In her sight he was a perjurer and a hypocrite. It was hard so to appear to the woman who had worshipped him, hard to know that there was a heart breaking for him yonder in the italian villa on the hill above the sea why should i grieve about her he asked himself angrily i must be a coxcomb to fancy that she is making herself unhappy for my sake she was angry with me the other day it was rage not wounded love that flashed from those brilliant eyes of hers the rage of slighted beauty she is far more concerned for her losses on the turf than at the loss of me. If my Dido mounts the funeral pyre, it will be because she has made a bad book, and not for my sake. But argue with himself as he might, Bothwell could not forget the agony of the face that had once been his delight, the despair in the voice which had bidden him farewell, the tremulous hand which had snatched the love token to fling it away in deepest scorn. Perhaps Bothwell would have more easily forgotten these things if he could have had the comfort of Hilda's society at this period of his life. But Hilda and the twins and Fräulein Meyerstein had all gone off to Dawlish for sea-bathing, and Mrs. Willard warned her cousin 
that he must not attempt to follow them. "'You are on your probation, my poor Bothwell,' she said, "'and you must be very careful how you act. "'If you were to go to Dawlish, you would only distress Hilda, "'who has promised not to see you till her brother comes back from Paris.' "'I am not going there. I would not distress her for worlds.' I am to wait patiently till Heathcote has made up his mind that I am not in the habit of throwing girls over viaducts, and then I may go to my darling and claim her promise. In the meantime, I can at least write to her. And he did write, within a few hours of his final interview with Lady Valeria. His letter was full and straight in its significance. My dearest, I am my own man again. I am free or as free as a man can be who is your most abject slave i am told that i am not to be allowed to see you till i stand acquitted of the crime which bodman has judged me quite capable of committing i think little as you know of me you know enough to be very sure that i am innocent upon that count but there was another count upon which i confess myself guilty hilda and it was that old sin which made me hang back months ago when I longed to tell you of my love. I have been guilty of a foolish attachment to a married woman, an attachment which lasted with varying fervour for over a year, but which had quite worn itself out before I left India. The flame burnt fiercely enough for a little while, and then came total extinction. Only it is not always easy for a man to shake off old fetters, and it was not till your pure and noble love gave me courage that I dared to stand up boldly and say, That old false love is dead. Let us bury it decently. And now the old love is buried, Hilda, and I am all your own. No one is any the worse for that old sentimental folly. Such flirtations are going on in India every day. Some end in guilt and misery, no doubt but there are more that finish as mine has finished, like the blowing out of a candle. Can you forgive me, dear one, for having once cared for another? Remember it was before I knew you. Henceforward I am yours, and yours only. I claim your dear promise. I ask you to engage yourself to a man whom Bobmin looks upon askance as a possible murderer. No, love, I will not exact so much. I will only tell you that I am all your own, and that I adore you. We will not talk about engagements till your brother comes back from Paris, convinced of my innocence as to that one particular charge, and until Bobmin has begun to forget that it ever suspected me. Your adoring Bothwell. Having written this letter, Bothwell had nothing to do but ride about the hills, thinking of his sweetheart, till he received her answer. She wrote with unstinted tenderness, and recoiled in no wise from the fulfilment of her promise. I hold myself engaged to you henceforward, dear Bothwell, she wrote, through good or evil fortune, good or evil report. But, as I have promised my brother not to see you while he is away, it might be well that we did not write to each other again until after his return. I think you know that I am steadfast, and that you can trust me yes he was very sure of her steadfastness was she not one woman in a thousand to have pledged herself to him just when any ordinary woman would have shunned him would have recoiled from him as from some savage monster 
she had been calm and steadfast and unfearing a woman who could dare to judge for herself and now bothwell Graeme felt that he had crossed the threshold of a new life he was no longer a solitary waif with no one to think of but himself he had not only his own future to work out with patience and courage he had to think of the young wife whom it might be his blessed fate to claim before he was much older he could no longer afford to be vague and wavering the problem of a gentlemanlike maintenance must be worked out by him somehow and without loss of time he walked across the cornish hills in those balmy afternoons of september full of thought and full of care happy yes ineffably happy in the knowledge of hilda's love but care went along with happiness he had to provide for his beloved long and thoughtful self-examination brought him to one positive conclusion about himself whatever he was to do in the future if he were to do it well must be in some wise the thing that he had done in the past he was a soldier to the marrow of his bones and it was in military work or military studies that he must find his future living this was the plan which he worked out for himself during those solitary rambles on the moor sometimes with gun and dogs sometimes with no companion save his own thoughts he would fall back upon the studious habits of his earlier years work at the science of soldiery as he had worked then he would take a house in one of the villages on the wild coast of north cornwall at trevena perhaps in king arthur's country some roomy old house with a good garden and he would take pupils to cram for the military examinations he knew that he could get on with young men he had always been popular with the subalterns of his regiment he would work honestly conscientiously devotedly as ever coach or crammer worked since the art of coaching and cramming was first invented it would be a jog-trot humble kind of life a life which could never lead to distinction far from a brilliant future to offer to such a girl as hilda heathcote yet he told himself that it was such a life as would not be altogether distasteful to her it was a life in which husband and wife need be but seldom parted in which all their amusements and relaxations could be shared they could hunt and shoot and ride and boat together on that wild coast the conventionalities would cost them very little fine clothes fine living would not be required of them and in their rustic seclusion they would escape the ghastly struggle to maintain showy appearances they could afford themselves all the comforts of a homely unpretentious menage bothwell felt that it was in him to do good and honest work in such a career as this surely better than sheep breeding or gold digging in some savage quarter of the earth where the intellectual man must gradually sink to the level of his companion brutes he pictured to himself the tranquil happiness of such a life the long morning of conscientious work followed by the afternoon ride or ramble the summer holiday after a successful term the adventurous excursion among scottish lakes or in some foreign land the cherished home gradually developed and improved from its primitive homeliness into a thing of beauty the garden in which wife and husband and pupils worked together towards the attainment of a lofty ideal the union of a household which should be as one family 
cheered by such visions bothwell took up his old technical books with an almost rabid hunger for study he sent to london for the newest treatises on gunnery he flung himself with heart and mind into the one line of study which had always interested him hilda had told him not to write to her but he could not deny himself the delight of unfolding his newly formed plan which he explained to her upon five sheets of closely written note-paper let me have just one more letter from you dearest he pleaded in conclusion to tell me what you think of my scheme and where we ought to look for a house shall it be trevena or boscastle or padstow or newquay i think we ought to be near the sea so that our lads may get plenty of boating and swimming and i could teach you to row we would live at least half our lives in the open air and we would study natural history in all its branches i fancy myself an ideal coach i know my pupils would adore me while you would be to them as a divinity our evenings could be devoted to music we would get up one of sullivan's operas and perform for the benefit of the school or the church we should be the most useful people in our parish it would be a humble jog-trot life darling but i believe it would be a happy one for both of us i know that for me it would be paradise the answer came by return yes dear bothwell your scheme is charming trevena is a delicious place and i should delight in living there i shall have a little money when i come of age i believe more than enough to furnish our house shall we be mediaeval or chippendale i say chippendale and we must get an old house for the sake of the panelling and the staircase and we must pull it all to pieces on account of the drains and now you must not write to me any more till edward comes home i have had a curious letter from him he is deeply absorbed in unravelling some dreadful mystery he has not yet found the murderer of that poor girl but i can see that he no longer suspects you how could he ever have harboured that monstrous idea cheered by such a letter as this bothwell worked as if he had been on the eve of some great examination worked as if his life depended on those long hours of toil yes he would get a house at trevena the sooner the better he had felt of late as if the atmosphere of penmorville stifled him he had been too long a hanger-on upon his rich cousin he was angry with himself for having dawdled and procrastinated and let life slide by him while he waited as if for a vision from heaven to point out the road in which he should walk and now the seraphic vision had been granted to him but the angel wore the shape of hilda heathcote hilda had inspired him with a desire to stay in england to earn his bread in his own country and out of that wish had arisen this scheme of his he would lose no time in putting his plan into execution of late he had read aversion in the eyes of julian willard or it may have been contempt for his idle life for his dependence in any case there was that in willard's manner which rendered existence at penmorval hateful for bothwell graham i suppose he too suspects me bothwell told himself he thinks it quite possible that i flung that girl into the gorge society is always ready to impute evil to an idler there is that doggerel of dr watts about the mischief that satan finds for idle hands to do he rode across country to trevena the day after he received hilda's frank and loving letter 
He was not going to wait until his darling was able to marry him before beginning his new life. He would set up his establishment as soon as the thing could be done, take pupils at once, get over all the roughness, the difficulty of the start, before he asked Hilda to share his home. Nor was he going to furnish his house with his wife's money. That was just one of the things he would not consent to do. He had his idea as to how he should furnish his house when he found one to his liking. Of course, he was not going to decide upon any house until Hilda had seen it and approved the choice, but in the meantime he rode off to Trevena on a voyage of discovery. It was a long ride and a hilly road, but not too long for the new hunter Glencoe, an animal with a tremendous reserve of force that had to be taken out of him somehow, an accumulated store of kicks and plunges which a clever rider could compound for in a good fast trot along the road, or a swinging gallop across the moorland. Bothwell and his horse were on excellent terms by the time they had gone three miles together, although the brute had insisted on going through Bodmin in a series of buck jumps. Life at Penmorville had been just a shade more sombre in its hue for the past week. Dora Willard had not been able altogether to overcome her offended feeling at that unwarrantable burst of passion upon her husband's part, which had followed Edward Heathcote's visit that he should upbraid and insult her that he should be jealous he for whose sake she had jilted an upright and honourable man he to whom she had given all the devotion of her life it seemed to her an almost unpardonable weakness and littleness on julian willard's part and she had thought his character above all pettiness common to meaner men she had loved him because he was noble-hearted and large-minded his indifference to Bothwell's good name, his selfish coldness upon a question which to her was vital, had wounded her to the quick. She was not a woman to give way to sullenness, to shut herself up in the armour of angry pride, to give ungracious answers and scant courtesy to the husband who had offended her. Yet there was a subtle change in her manner and bearing which was perceptible to Julian Willard and which he felt keenly. Neither husband nor wife had recurred by so much as one word or hint to that scene in the yew-tree arbour. Life had glided by for these last few days in just the same manner as of old, but the shadow was there all the same. The mild genius of domestic love had veiled his face. Dora was sitting in the library with her husband at post-time on the day of Bothwell's ride to Trevena. Julian Willard was at his desk writing, while his wife sat in her favourite window, absorbed in a new book, with the open box from Mudie's at her feet, when the servant brought in the post-bag. Dora watched her husband intently as he unlocked the bag and took out a pile of letters and papers. He looked up as he was sorting the letters and surprised that earnest expression in his wife's eyes. "'You are expecting some important letter,' he said. "'Yes, I am anxious to hear from Mr. Heathcote,' she answered quietly. It was the first time that name had been spoken by either of them since the scene in the arbour. "'There is your letter, then, in Heathcote's hand, with the Paris postmark. Thank you.' She rose and walked across to the desk to receive her letters. "'I hope he has some good news for me.' She went back to the window. 
and opened heathcote's letter standing by the open window in the full light of the september afternoon her husband watching her all the while her face brightened as she read there was no need for him to ask if the news were good your letter seems satisfactory he said unfolding the times as he spoke it is a good letter she answered it tells me that mr heathcote has begun to see how wrong he was in suspecting bothwell he has evidently made some discovery about that poor girl's fate he at any rate has found out who she is indeed said willard deep in a leading article he has found out who she is yes he writes her name as if i ought to know all about her he is still groping in the dark he says but he hopes to fathom the mystery of leonie lamarck's death there was no answer mr willard was absorbed by the paper you were not listening julian oh yes i was leonie lamarck a french name we were right then in supposing that the girl was french he laid aside the newspaper and began to open his letters but he had not said a word more about heathcote's news dora felt that he might have been more interested more sympathetic it was her cousin whose reputation and happiness were at stake affection for her should have made these things of greater moment to her husband bothwell came home in time for the eight o'clock dinner and in excellent spirits he had seen an old cottage standing in a large garden with a fine old orchard adjoining a cottage which could be converted by considerable additions into a capital house for himself and his pupils the situation was superb the cottage stood on a height near the junction of two roads and it commanded magnificent views of sea and coast i could make the additions i want for three or four hundred pounds he told dora when he was alone with her in the drawing-room after dinner i should be my own architect and my own builder i should only have to pay for labour and materials i did a goodish deal in the building line when i was in the army you know dora supervising the alterations of the jungapore barracks i know more about bricks and mortar than you would give me credit for knowing he had previously confided his idea of taking pupils and dora had approved and had promised her heartiest cooperation he was sure of her sympathy with all his endeavours to win an honourable independence at home the idea of his emigrating had always been unwelcome to her and now dora i am going to make a very audacious proposition he said when he had finished his description of the cottage at trevena i want you to lend me seven hundred pounds to be repaid in half yearly instalments of one hundred pounds during the next three years and a half with or without interest as you may think fit suppose we say nothing about the repayment bothwell said his cousin smiling at him as she looked up from her embroidery you shall have the seven hundred pounds and we will decide by and by whether it is to be a loan or a gift dora you are too generous he began nonsense bothwell i always intended to furnish you with a small capital if you made up your mind to emigrate i had much rather give you the money to invest at home you are the last of my clan my only near relative and i don't want to lose you i look to you and hilda and your children to bright the decline of my life oh dora that seems a poor substitute for those who should be nearer and dearer cried bothwell 
in the next instant he would gladly have recalled his words for he saw the tears well up to his cousin's eyes and he knew that her childless marriage was a grief you are too good far more generous than i deserve he went on hurriedly but let the money be at least called a loan if fortune favour me within the next few years it will be such a pleasure to give you back your money and if fate prove unkind i shall know i have not a hard creditor but i have made up my mind to be successful i mean to work as men seldom work to make everything i do a labour of love and with such a wife as hilda hilda will be a wife in a thousand i am sure your pupils will adore her and you must make your house very pretty for hilda's sake seven hundred will not be half enough it will be more than enough you don't know how economically i can build and how cleverly hilda and i will contrive to furnish we will ride over the country to overhaul all the cottages and farmhouses in quest of neglected old bits of chippendale and sheraton we shall get lovely old things for a mere song and find some clever jobbing cabinet maker to make them as good as new and in the end you will find they will have cost you more than if you had bought them from nozotti said dora laughing at his eagerness i know how costly that kind of economy is apt to prove in the long run you had better get your sheraton or your chippendale furniture made on purpose for you new and sound and convenient and of more charming designs than chippendale ever imagined no dora i am intense as a chippendalist i must have the real thing old and inconvenient even if you like what a boy you are still bothwell and now i am going to tell you something that will please you hilda is coming here tomorrow speculated bothwell eagerly no hilda is not coming back while her brother is away that is not my good news bothwell it is even better than that and then she told him the contents of heathcote's letter i am very glad he said quietly that is at least one knocked off the list of my suspicious friends julian willard came into the drawing-room while the cousins were sitting together talking their heads bending towards each other the family likeness between them was very strong they looked like brother and sister and they looked very happy dora was in the garden next day when the postman brought his bag she was no longer anxious about her letters having received the expected tidings from paris she was moving slowly among her roses armed with a basket and a pair of garden scissors cutting off blind buds and shabby blooms making war upon her insect enemies enjoying the balmy air and warm sunshine of early autumn julian willard came out of the glass door while she was thus occupied she looked up at the sound of the familiar footsteps and went across the grass to meet him my dear dora are you inclined to go for a week's holiday with me he asked in his cheeriest tones i am always ready to go anywhere with you is it because you have not been feeling well of late that you want to leave penmorval she asked looking anxiously at him remembering his strange irritation that burst of jealousy which might after all only have been an indication of an overworked brain i have not been feeling over well a little worried and irritable and more than a little weak and languid he answered but it is not on that account i want to go away you remember my losing the raphael last july perfectly 
well there is a still finer raphael to be sold next week in paris at the hotel drouot the great rochejaclin collection comes to the hammer there are some of the finest grouses in europe there are Missonniers of the highest quality and a famous de la roche i may not buy any of the pictures no doubt the prices will be enormous but i should like to see the collection once more before it is scattered to the four winds would you mind running over to paris with me for a week or would you rather stay at home while i go i should very much like to go i have never been in paris with you except hurrying through from station to station have you not that is strange i have never even seen the house where you lived when you were making your fortune in paris that would not be much to see a ground floor near the madeleine a capital point for a business man within ten minutes walk of the bourse and in that central spot where the idlers and workers alike congregate a most uninteresting nest dora nothing historical or picturesque or romantic within half a mile it will be enough for me that you lived and worked there you must have worked very hard in those days i was not one of the butterflies i assure you mr distin told me that you turned your back upon all the dissipations and pleasures of paris that you were a man of one idea working only for one end to make a great fortune that is the only way for a poor man to grow rich i had to make brain labor and concentration serve me instead of capital i had the good luck to enter the parisian bourse at a period when fortunes might be made by hard thinking when to win in the game of speculation was a question of mathematics nature and schooling had made me a decent mathematician and i used all the science i had in fighting the coulissiers with their own weapons but i am talking a language which you can't understand Dora let the past be past you and i have only to spend the money i earned in those days you are always spending your wealth for the good of others julian his wife answered tenderly providence ought to bless the riches you earned in your laborious youth i cannot imagine you caring for money for its own sake i never did so care for it dora money in my mind meant power I began life as a poor man's son and tasted all the bitterness of narrow means in my boyhood i told myself that i would be rich before i grew old and to that end i worked as few men worked i was able to surround my mother with luxury during the closing years of her life i was able to give my sister a dowry that helped the man of her choice to make his way in the world years before he could have done so without that aid she did not live very long to enjoy her happiness poor girl but her last days were brightened by prosperity no dora i was not a money-grubber but i made speculation a science and i turned the age in which i lived to good account it is not often given to a speculator to live in such a golden age as the days of morny and jecker i am sure you would do nothing that was not strictly honourable said dora with a bright trusting look oh i belonged to the honourable section of the bourse replied willard with a somewhat cynical smile i had my office and my agents in london and was a power on the stock exchange and when i had acquired a reputation as a financier on both sides of the channel i founded the firm of willard and morrison with one of the richest merchants in london for my partner 
a man in my position could soil his fingers with no doubtful enterprise well dora is it agreed you will go to paris with me with pleasure she was happier than she had felt since that cloud of anger had passed across her domestic horizon julian's manner was franker fonder more like his old self the man who had won her away from that other noble-minded man to whom she had promised herself the man for whose sake she had been willing to break her promise can you be ready to start to-morrow morning for the sale takes place in three days hence and i want to have a good look at the pictures before they come to the hammer yes i'll be ready whenever you like then we'll leave by the morning train and go straight on to paris by the night mail you will be able to see heathcote and hear how his investigation progresses where is he staying by the way at the hotel de bade i'll drop him a line and ask him to call on us at the windsor it is an old-fashioned family hotel where i think you will be more comfortable than at one of those huge palaces where you may be surfeited with splendid upholstery but rarely get your bell answered under a quarter of an hour you will take priscilla i suppose priscilla was mrs willard's maid cornish to the marrow and a severe primitive methodist priscilla in paris no i think not she was so wretched in italy the very smell of the incense offended her she will not be overpowered by incense in paris nowadays she is more likely to be offended by a new age of reason however if you think you can do without her i'm sure i can we shall not be visiting i suppose hardly i think it is the dullest of dull seasons in paris just now and i had never a large visiting acquaintance in that city i was too busy a man to go into society you must have been a stoic to resist the temptations of parisian society the writers the painters singers actors all that is foremost and brightest in the intellectual world there are circles and circles in paris as well as in london i have been in parisian assemblies that were eminently dull said willard they started from penmorval after breakfast next morning and were seated in the dover mail at eight o'clock in the evening after dining at the grand hotel dora was in excellent spirits change of scene had a brightening effect upon her mind and she was very happy in the idea of hilda and bothwell's happiness she had handed her cousin a cheque for seven hundred pounds with which he was to open an account at the local bank and then he had only to wait for hilda to approve his choice before he set to work with bricklayers and carpenters at improving a cottage into an elizabethan grange that was his idea we will have an elizabethan grange furnished with real chippendale he said incongruous but charming then be sure that very few of your windows are made to open said dora laughing at his ardour if you want to be truly elizabethan every casement shall open to its uttermost width every corner of the house shall be steeped in light and air protested bothwell and now dora willard was reclining in her corner of the railway compartment speeding towards dover through the grey autumn night by kentish hayfields and stubble and across the gentle undulations of a kentish landscape so different from the bold hills and deep gorges of her native cornwall there was a reading lamp hanging on mrs willard's side of the carriage and she had the october quarterlies and a heap of papers to beguile the journey 
among the papers was the times supplement which he opened for the first time to look at the births marriages and deaths mr willard had read the other part of the paper before they reached paddington but he had not looked at the supplement while dora was looking down the births marriages and deaths in a casual way her eye was suddenly caught by an advertisement at the top of the second column the person who was to have met leonie lamarck at charing cross station on the morning of july fifth last is earnestly requested to communicate immediately with messrs destin and son solicitors furnival's inn how strange exclaimed dora and then she read the advertisement to her husband who was sitting in an opposite corner with closed eyes as if half asleep he started at the sound of her voice i beg your pardon julian i did not see that you were asleep i was only dozing leonie lamarck that was the name of the girl who was killed was it not then no doubt the advertisement is put in by heathcote the reference to distin indicates as much he must have made some further discovery about that unfortunate girl said dora thoughtfully he must have found out the date of her arrival in london and that she came to meet some particular person do you think it was that person who killed her julian my dear dora how can i think about a business of which i know absolutely nothing for anything we know the girl's death may have been purely accidental and this person who was to have met her at the station may be a figment of heathcote's fancy and this advertisement only a feeler thrown out in the hope of obtaining information from some unknown source why any of you should trouble yourself to solve this mystery is more than i can understand why julian did not you yourself send for mr distin did you not say that as a magistrate it was your duty to do all i could to further the ends of justice most assuredly dora but having engaged the assistance of the cleverest criminal lawyer in england and having failed to fathom the mystery i had no more to do i had done my duty and i was content to let the matter rest so would i have been if people had not suspected bothwell i could have no peace while there was such a cloud upon my cousin's reputation that shows how narrow a view even the cleverest and most large-minded of women can take in this big world surely it can matter to no man living what a handful of people in a little country town may choose to think about him bothwell has to spend his life among those people well you have had your own way in the matter my dear dora and if you will only allow me to forget all about it i am content that you and heathcote should grope for ever in the labyrinth of that girl's antecedents a lady's maid or a nursery governess i suppose who came to england to seek her fortune dora was silent once again she felt that there was a want of sympathy upon her husband's part in this matter he ought to have remembered that bothwell was to her as a brother they were in paris early next morning mr willard had telegraphed to the proprietor of the windsor and had secured charming rooms on the first floor with a balcony overlooking the gardens of the tuileries the outer shell of the palace still stood there a memorial of the brilliant historic past and cabs and carriages and omnibuses and wagons were driving across the once sacred grounds on the new road that had been lately cut from the rue de rivoli to the quay it was a splendid paris upon which dora and her husband looked out 
in the clear freshness of the autumnal morning but it was curiously changed from the imperial paris which julian wyllard had known twenty years before it seemed to him this morning looking across those ruined palace walls the daylight streaming through those vacant windows as if he and the world had grown old and dim and feeble since those days twenty years ago and morny was alive and jecker was a power on the parisian bourse and julian wyllard was laying the foundation stones of his fortune he had started the credit mouret that powerful association which had dealt with the wealth of eastern princes and jewish traders had almost launched the company for the rebuilding of the temple at jerusalem had ridden gaily over the perilous ocean of public enterprise for some time and had made great fortunes for the four or five gifted individuals whose second sight revealed to them the right hour at which to withdraw their capital from the scheme yes it had been a glorious paris in those days a city in which a young englishman with a mathematical brain could court the goddess fortune more profitably than in his native capital julian wyllard had earned his bread upon the london stock exchange for some years before he changed the scene of his labours to paris but it was upon the paris bourse that he began to make his fortune dora was tired after her journey for she had been too full of thought to sleep in the train and even now her brain was too active for the possibility of rest so after dressing and breakfasting she accompanied her husband to the great parisian auction rooms to look at the Jacqueline collection the inspection of the pictures lasted over two hours julian wyllard was an ardent connoisseur and his wife sympathized with him in his love of art together they criticized the gems of the collection and stood in silent admiration before the famous raphael it will fetch thousands said wyllard why not buy it if you really wish to possess it said dora why should we hoard our money there is no one to come after us penmorval may be a show-place when you and i are gone and your picture gallery will give pleasure to hundreds of tourists ah there is the rub sighed her husband conscious of the latent melancholy in his wife's speech no son of mine succeeding when you and i are gone there will be no one to care for penmorval no one to cherish your garden and say my mother planted these roses or planned these walks no one to treasure the pictures i have collected for any reason except their intrinsic value will you take me to see the house in which you lived and worked asked dora as they were leaving the auction room my dear dora i can show you the outside of that historic spot answered her husband lightly but i doubt if i can introduce you to the rooms in which i worked the present occupant may not be inclined to sympathize with your hero worship oh but i should so like to see those rooms and i am sure if the occupier is a gentleman he will not refuse such a natural request here comes mr heathcote she exclaimed as they turned into the boulevard i was coming to the hotel drouot in quest of you said heathcote as they shook hands i called at your hotel and was told you had gone to the auction room how well you are looking mrs willard as if paris agreed with you your letter took a weight off my mind she said and now i hope you will be kind to bothwell and hilda and not insist upon too long an engagement it seems to me that bothwell and hilda have taken their lives into their own hands and don't want anybody's kindness he answered 
I have had a tremendous letter from Hilda, telling me her lover's plans. They are the most independent young people I ever heard of. And pray, what brings you to Paris? Are you going on anywhere? No, we have only come to look at the Rochaclin pictures, answered Willard. I have two or three business calls to make in the neighbourhood of the Bourse. Willard and Morrison have still some dealings in Paris. And I am going to look at my husband's old apartments, said Dora. I have never stayed in Paris since our marriage. My only knowledge of the city dates from the time when I spent a month at Patsy with my dear mother. What a happy time it was, and how much we contrived to see. It was in 69, and people were beginning to talk about war with Germany. And how little did any of us think of the ruin that was coming, when we saw the Emperor and Empress driving in the Bois. Come back to the hotel and lunch with us, Heathcote, asked Willard. A thousand thanks, but I am too Parisian to eat at this hour. I breakfasted at eleven o'clock. And we breakfasted less than three hours ago, said Dora. I am sure we neither of us want luncheon. Let us go and look at your old home, Julian. It is not to be called a home, Dora, answered her husband with a touch of impatience. A businessman's life has only one aspect, hard work. However, if you want to see the offices in which a money-grubber toiled, you shall be gratified. The street is not very far off. Will you walk there with us? he added, turning to Heathcote. Gladly. I am a free man today. Indeed. Then your criminal investigation, your amateur detective work, is at a standstill for the moment, I conclude? said Willard, with an ill-concealed sneer. For the moment, yes, answered the other, quietly. And you have made some startling discoveries, no doubt, since you crossed the channel. Yes, my discoveries have been startling, but as they relate to the remote past rather than to the period of that poor girl's death, they are of no particular value at present. The remote past? What do you mean by that? asked Willard. Ten years ago. May we ask the nature of these discoveries? I'd rather tell you nothing at present. My knowledge is altogether fragmentary. Directly I have reduced it to a definite form, directly I have a clear and consecutive story to tell, you and Mrs. Willard shall hear that story. In the meantime, I had rather not talk about the case. You have all the professional reticence, and I see that you and Distin are working together, said Willard. How do you mean? We saw your advertisement in yesterday's times. How did you know that I had inserted that advertisement? The girl's name was conclusive. Léonie Lamarck, that was the name of the girl who was killed. Yes, but I did not think it was known to anyone except Distin and myself. You mentioned the name in your letter to me, said Dora. Did I really? Then it was unconsciously. I meant to have told nothing till I could tell the whole story. End of chapter 3